Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brother, Christian Lewis. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we're talking dance punk. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's ask Christian, what the fuck is dance punk? Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Christian Lewis. So it is a Brother, Brother podcast today, and we're talking about dance punk. And I have to say that um, this escapes me a little bit. I, there was uh, um, a movement in the early 2000s, but I think you can probably put your finger on it better than I can in terms of classifying it. Yeah, today I think we're, uh, we are talking about dance punk, which is a genre that, <laughs> as you said, thrived in sort of the early and mid-2000s. Uh, and you know, it was it was really a time when it wasn't cool to sort of throw a dance party, at least initially. Um, you know, punks ultimately sort of said, "Let's dance around the new millennium," because that's you know what contrarian punk culture logically says you'll do. The innovation that I think sort of defines this genre is the introduction of dance rhythm sections that sort of steered indie rock away from the lead-footed post-grunge 1990s, which was really your heyday, Wyndham. Although I have seen you dance, and it's pretty impressive. I like to dance. I got no, I got no fear. Yeah, I mean, this means that sort of funky bass riffs and, you know, worn-out hi-hats were, were suddenly back across uh, music clubs, particularly in the U.S. and U.K. Um, you know, I think it was a time when indie rockers put four to the floor and sort of built songs. Uh, you know, bands like The Rapture, LCD Sound System, The Faint, um, who were weirdly from Nebraska, uh, Hot Hot Heat, and then um, in D.C., uh, Q and Not You, uh, Black Eyes, and then, you know, even further afield, um, such as Brazil, CSS, or Canada, DFA in 1979. Isn't Hot Hot Heat Canadian um, as well? Yeah. They were, yeah, absolutely. Even stepping out of the stable of groups, I think, you know, dance rhythms became sort of ubiquitous for a while in the mid-2000s, and, you know, you can hear it across... Uh, the work of bands like Franz Ferdinand and the Killers, the Bravery, Kaiser Chiefs, and uh, the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, when you think about songs like Why Control on um, uh, Fever to Tell or, um, you know, or Heads Will Roll on It's Blitz. Electro Clash, I think, was, uh, was a sort of connected genre here, you know, and that complemented these groups and, and sort of helped pull together different fan bases that, that you know, through combined show billings. I mean, I remember as a, as a teenager seeing, um, you know, a ton of the bands I just mentioned um, teed up with groups like Le Tigre, Fisher Spooner, Peaches, and, and Ladytron. Um, you know, and I think in retrospect, it's easy to see that there was a sort of significant change taking place, and indie rock kids could once again be uh, be sort of shaking it to the ground, as Rai Rai said, um, after, you know, a decade of pretty swingless rock and, and sullen balladry. Um, so uh, with that, I would say, girls, grab your dancing Chuck Taylors, and guys, grab your girlfriend's T-shirts, uh, because it's time to hit the dance floor. Yeah, I, I actually, um, you know, it's funny, I was, I was reading um, Meet Me in the Bathroom not too, 
uh, as you were not too long ago. And they kind of, you know, in with the Electro Clash stuff, they kind of threw in the Scissor Sisters as well, which really baffled me because that to me doesn't, that's not a, a one for one kind of thing. I think of Electro Clash as, as really rudimentary, kind of like Casio tone keyboard type stuff. Uh, and, and more of it, is, you know, it's more art driven than it is music driven. Yeah, if um, anything, I would think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't actually specifically remember that. Uh, uh, that reference, but um, that is sort of odd because I, you know, I, Electro Clash is is if anything, um, extremely uh, simplistic, like you know, drum machine and Casio, uh, like single note, you know, synths or even keyboards, not even synths. I mean, it's like it's an excuse to perform, right? Exactly. It's like <laughs> the ultimate. Um, it's the it's the last uh, uh, you know last refuge for the um, completely unmusical art student. Yeah, I think it's it's weird because I think of dance punk uh, as being from you know sort of like when the dance clubs uh, moved into the to the rock you know to the live venues to the music. But I think of electro clash as like when the art galleries moved into the uh, indie rock space into the uh, live venues. So anyway, that's uh, that's just one person's opinion. back to the brother 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 podcast today we're talking dance punk um where did where do you think it came from i mean it, walk me through the origins of this thing it, it kind of just seemed to appear yeah i mean i think as we as we talk about all the time and in, in different genres you know music does have have cyclical qualities right like i mean things disappear and reemerge all the time 
this wasn't the first time that the punks sort of discovered the, the joy of dancing, uh, I don't think. And, you know, the, the spiritual sort of ancestors to this movement were, you know, everything from uh, disco, uh, you know, in its purest form to um, the punks that co-opted some of the dance beats and rhythms um, back in the, the late 70s and, you know, sort of early 80s. So think like Gang of Four to New Order. Um, so, you know, just, just take a listen to their, uh, the Gang of Four song, Not Great Men, here off, off their album Entertainment, and just, just listen to the, the thumping four-to-the-floor rhythm. side of things, check out this 1973 song, The Love I Lost, by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And this is, so Earl Young's drumming here is sort of credited for creating the disco style of rock drumming that has that, like, distinctive and extremely liberal use of the uh, of the hi-hat um, to, uh, to really, like, set off a, a, you know, a sort of kinetic energy there. stuff was really coming back into fashion as, as a danceable alternative to, like, the post-grunge 90s. I mean, as well as to, you know, budding garage rock revival bands led by The Strokes. So, I mean, Wyndham, you know, you really lived through this fully aware of it. I was, to the extent, you know, listening to, like, radio at the age of 10, 11, 12. My recollection is, I mean, and don't even get me started on new metal. You know how I feel about that. But, like, my recollection is... You love it. Yeah, totally. Um, please, more Mudvayne and P.O.D. Uh, but, like, it, it just there wasn't, like, a lot of swing. I mean, there wasn't... Well, I think I think there was, like, this... You know, there's this blind spot, I think, that, um, you know, you either you don't remember. Obviously, you don't remember because uh, you were barely cognizant for it. You know, you were six, seven years old. But there was um, quite a bit of, like palatable, very heavy dance music that came out of the rave scene in England. And in I'm England. talking about, yeah, no, but I'm talking that became very popular here. I'm talking, you know, Fat Boy, they were mostly British artists, Chemical Brothers, Fat Boy Slim. Chumbawamba. Um, <laughs> you love Chumbawamba. Um, no, but, uh, you know, those kinds of, you know, those kinds of bands, they were heavy, heavy, heavy um, sounds. I mean, they, they were, you know, they were absolutely rocking. And not to mention the fact that, you know, hip hop was, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, most people could, could go back and forth, st- you know, anybody who was really interested in music was going back and forth between, you know, grunge and hip hop. Um, well, is, that, is that fair to say though, that like what, what rave culture was in England, sort of hip hop was to in the United States that like it provided an alternative to mainstream rock, which here was obviously grunge and there was obviously mm. Britpop. 
No, I think here, I think uh, rave culture um, and Britpop weren't very divorced from each other. Um, People I don't were able think... to sort of seamlessly, you know, walk out of an Oasis concert and into it. Like, well, uh, I mean, two of the Chemical Brothers. Big, <laughs> yeah, two of the biggest songs that the Chemical Brothers do, did, Noel Gallagher sings lead on. Um, you know, Setting Sun and... Um, uh, yeah, but Aerosmith is in... Let Forever <laughs> Run DMC. Yeah, fair enough. That's a little different. Yeah, yeah no, I guess. Um, but what I'm saying is that there was not... You know, people were listening to Britpop by day and, and you know, heavy heavy rave shit at night. Um, it was... Uh, you know, they weren't divorced. They're, they've never been divorced from each other in England. There's never really been that sort of indie versus dance music. People like the dance over there. Um, and they're a little less... I mean, they're they should be more self conscious because yeah, they're English. To say, is that is that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, but no, that 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 was what drugs were for. Um, and so you know, you get a lot of uh, you know th- this was all you know based on on the great MDMA craze of the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, you had you know Stone Roses and stuff doing danceable songs, but you also had you know like straight up dance music for the sake of dance music. Uh, you know, in France too, you had you know Daft Punk and people like that. Um, that were, uh, you know, uh, a little later on, there was more of of proliferation of that. But, um, you know, what I'm saying is that there was not a total absence of dance music. Um, It was just not as melded with uh, rock instrumentation. Um, Well, case in point, look look at our friend and friend of the podcast, Andrew Weatherall, remixing My Bloody Valentine, you know? Yeah, there, exactly. There wasn't a, there, there was there, no... There wasn't a firewall there. Yeah, exactly. So, but there was here. Yeah, there kind of was. And it, it's, it was weird because, I mean, I, you know, uh, I liked them both. So it was, you know, I didn't feel as factionalized uh, as it perhaps... We'd be, I, but I, what I do think uh, so there, is a root, root there, cause there of that is... there wasn't a firewall? No, I there was a... That there was here. No, there was sort of here. Not for you. I'm saying... I'm saying not for me, and you know, people, Fatboy Slim sold plenty of records over here. Chemical Brothers sold plenty of records over here, but what it, what it was more or less is that radio really segregated it. Um, you know, if people who people who were music fans, um, you know, I mean, the music nerds that were probably uh, make up a hundred percent of our audience. You know, we're listening to both things simultaneously without too much difficulty. But I as think you they said, make up you grew up on percent of our audience. Yeah, you, you you grew up on HFS in in DC and and you know rock you know stations um you know it was you were right around that time when factionalization and radio was so complete that you know you only got one kind of music per radio station it wasn't like a freeform thing like uh, independent radio was in places like Boston and Los Angeles where they would play a Chemical Brothers song next to a Soundgarden song um it really was you had the sort of corporate radio um you know, stranglehold that I think, um, the, you know, really the record companies and radio stations were the architects of. Yeah, well, they were uh, making shit tons of money hand over fist on CD exactly. sales and didn't need to try very hard. In comes the internet. Um, yeah. And this is the where I think... Great democratization of music. Yeah, no, that's right. And I mean, part of it was the fact that, you know, a lot of the reason that we have these terms in the first place is is really because of a, a sort of artificial taxonomy that was introduced by blog culture, starting with things like Pitchfork. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that part of it was that people could sort of consume more easily different songs, remixes, and, you know, and really get as much exposure as they wanted to at a pretty young age. And so I think the thing that really sets apart 
like, I mean, let, let's, you know, get to the, the sort of core of, of the definition here to the, uh, of, of what dance punk really is, you know, it, it isn't just dance music, it's, it's punk as well. And I think the thing that really set it apart was that a lot of the musicians um, who were making this music started out in, you know, the hardcore punk scene. And I think that that brought a level of sort of intensity and aggression to dance music that hadn't really been there. And rather than focusing on things like good singing, um, you just had extraordinarily charismatic frontmen. So I'm thinking about, you know, uh, you know, the Rapture's live performances or the fact that Nick Offer from Chick 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 was the vocalist in the hardcore band Yamos. James Murphy of LCD Sound System was a drummer in Pony and Speed King. Hot Hot Heat's first album, uh, compiled in scenes one through thirteen, shows this sort of scrappy hardcore outfit that that hadn't really settled on a sound. Um, and you know, DC punks for their part, sort of building on that Fugazi swagger and, and the go-go scene from from DC. Groups like Q and Not You and Black Eyes, which were on Discord Records, the legendary punk label, were, were suddenly making music to try and usher people out onto the dance floor. So in other words, dancing became cool for punks. Yeah, I, th- I always thought Fugazi had a pretty swinging rhythm section. You know what I mean? They it's do. Like, yeah. So, I mean, they, they always struck me as like, um, you know, if it, like that was danceable music, uh, much the same as like, you know, You Shook Me All Night Long as danceable music. Um you know, I, there's there's rock music that is danceable, um, and this but this really did push it, you know, uh, full scale into like the, you know, thumping base of a of a disco. Yeah, and there was just music. more dance experimentation, right? Like the fact that on I think you know one of the the sort of leading seminal albums of this period was Make Up the Breakdown by Hot Hot Heat, and you know. Yeah, those guys, like, I mean, they have Latin shuffles on that album, you know what I mean? It's like they are really, really digging deep and broadly into sort of different types of dance rhythms. And, um, you know, I I think uh, what I will be interested, though, in in talking to you about when we get back from a break in a second is is really sort of... not just the fact that the the punks were sort of uh, experimenting with all of this dance music, but the fact that all of a sudden in nightclubs people are spinning rock music, like you just said, um, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden nightclub culture is really starting to mix, um, particularly in places like New York. So, so well, one thing I would want to I just want to throw in before the break is I think two of the two of the real bridge artists in this and um, are Moby and Beck. Um, you know, I think they were both doing, you know, A, Moby put out a, a full-on, you know, punk rock record at one point in the middle of all of his dance stuff. Um, so he, he came from a punk background and, and was a fan. Um, but also the guy who put out a, a record in 99 or 2000 play that just was inescapable for a, for a spell. I mean, it was in every freaking mall, every gap, every CVS, every mobile station that yeah, you can possibly... Yeah, every dive bar and every super club on the Lower East Side. Yeah, but, and then Beck, you know, was it's always been kind of a sneaky, uh, sneakily funky kind of an artist. I mean, Odelay is a pretty danceable record. Um, has his moments. You know, the, yeah, well, I mean, he put on a full-on, you know, dance and funk. He put out a sort of homage to Prince <laughs> at the tail end of the I 90s. Not, I, would not, I would not say I know what to do when derelict wind comes on, but that's all right. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know what to do when sex loss comes on. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, so there was, you know, there was this, and I think too at the time, like there was a, you know, uh, hip hop was coming out of a strict, you know, everybody was, you know, doing a sort of, uh, um, 
badass gangster rap thing and it got fun again with stuff like Outkast. Um, so I think those two things were happening simultaneously. That bridge was being crossed. Um, you know, one going to one side, one going to the other at the same time. Yeah, it got fun. Yeah, as I'm thinking about it, like Big Pimpin' and Jay-Z, you know, The Life and Times of Sean Carter, Volume 3 came out, and that was just sort of anthemic for a while. Yeah, yeah it's it, celebratory. It got, it got party, you know, yeah, exactly. But, I mean, that, of course... Oof, that led to some bad rap, but um, but yeah. yeah, no, there were some there were some really um, you know uh, golden moments in there. So that that that's a really interesting point. I like that. So anyway, let's go. Let's do that break, and then we'll come back and, and talk a little bit about old people shit, like history. <laughs> talking about dance punk and if it sounds like i've been talking more about you know punk than dance music i think that's probably because i have um you know when we're thinking about the um uh myriad sort of dance influences that affected these early 2000s groups you know it's it's worth asking ourselves sort of where the where the sort of dance uh, component is really coming from and so, Wyndham, you were living in New York in the in the '90s through this, and and through this sort of reimagination of, of dance and punk music was was coming together. So, tell us a little bit about what you think like the cultural influences were in the city that were shaping this music. Well, let me ask you one question: Have you ever been to a dance club, like that was strictly a dance club that wasn't like? Well, a lot yes, of music? I have. I mean, aside from the boogie round with Andy Weatherall, but you have, so you, I mean, like growing up, did you? That was a, like a that was a uh, you know a destination for uh you know us in high school and and you know this is i'm talking mid 80s when i started hanging around in new york when i was in school when i was you know 15 16 and new york had a uh, a very strict uh no carding policy um you know you could go into like paramount i mean sorry the uh, pyramid or xenons or dance interior or any of these places basically if you were uh, you know, had if you can see clothes bar, on. You can order a drink. Yeah, well, if you had cool clothes on, you know, that nobody cared how old you were. Um, but you know, that was, and also, you know, so that peaked, you know, late '80s, early '90s, and really sort of came to a screeching halt when uh, Rudy Giuliani decided to crack down on um, on dance clubs. Really, uh, largely, um, I think, because uh, this is all part of like uh, the broken window shit. 
This was... Um, I mean, it was really you know, the crackdown was, on crime, right? It was like about a big cleanup of New was, York. You could, you could wrap it in a million different packages. You could say you were being tough on crime. What it really was is he closed up... The, you know, I mean, the, this is like, you know... Uh, um, you could say it was a public uh, it was a safety thing. Project. You know, it was a lot of different things. I mean, you know, uh, this was designed to curb AIDS, like closing down the bathhouses in San Francisco, but it was also a crackdown on drugs and crime. Um, and all well, of those probably things. Probably there was some element of, uh, of, of development and profitability of downtown totally. New York. I mean, totally. I mean, Pe- Peter Gation owned uh, the Limelight. He was a big... Uh, club guy. He was, um, you know, he was an interesting character. Um, he was arrested in a, I think, a federal sting uh, for running an ecstasy ring out of the limelight. And um, I'm not sure if he was deported back to Canada or whether he was in jail. Uh, one of those two things happened, and they closed down the all difference? of these places. Yeah, um, but they closed down all the you know the dance clubs that were um, you know cresting at that point, and it was a it was a bummer. One very funny aside I have to tell you is that um, when I moved to New York uh, in ninety one or two, um, we our first apartment was in Chelsea, and it was like a really really you know mystifyingly large apartment. Uh, I don't know how the hell we found it uh, through my brother-in-law. Um, but, uh, we were going to have a party and you could fit a couple hundred people in this place. And, um, you know, this is Chelsea where you now couldn't afford a studio, but, um, so my friend Bill Walsh, uh, decided that we needed bubble machines if we were going to have a dance party at our apartment. And he went over, he called the rental place to, uh, rent some bubble machines and, they said, oh, we just rented the last ones to the limelight. So he went over to the limelight and knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm Bill Walsh from uh, ABC Rentals. I need to get my bubble machines back. And he walked out with three bubble machines uh, that he lifted from the limelight. So uh, we had, for a very long time, uh, the rusty remains of three bubble machines that we stole from the limelight. May they rest in peace. Exactly, among other things. But anyway, that was a, a long way around saying that, you know, it used to really be a thing to go out dancing, I'm sure it still is, but um, it was very much built around sort of gay culture um, and gay nightclubs, and that's where you went to dance. I think um, over the course of time, um, that sort of segregation of, you know, um, or the sort of, you know, what I like to call the sort of uh, um, demystification of two men dancing together, um, you know, just led to there no longer needing to be uh, distinct sets of clubs and bars where, you know, men could hang out. So, so, so it's like it's becoming, I mean, naturally, it was like through the 90s, it's becoming increasingly sort of desegregated. And yeah. or more than that, it's becoming integrated, right? Like yeah, people it's are becoming, going to the same places to listen to similar types of music. And weirdly, I mean, I'm not going to give Giuliani any credit for this, but I think it was the closing down of, of a lot of nightclubs um, that then made people have to reimagine what a nightclub is. Right. So, incidentally and probably unintentionally, um, there was uh, that that played a role as as, as you know society um, below uh, below Fourteenth Street sort of adapted to its new environment. Yeah. And I then mean, what, what about what about Electro Clash? I mean, this is something that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like I would see these build together with these sort of dance punk bands on a on a regular basis. And, you know, it was groups like Peaches from Canada, 
uh, Fisher Spooner um, from the New School. Uh, and I always like the spirit of those things, but I never, you know, is a it was as really a music performative, junkie. right? Yeah, it was. A, it was much more of like performance art than it was. Latigra were actually um, really good. I thought Latigra was really good. Uh, Fisher Spooner not as good, but you know, they emerge is a great song though. Yeah, no kidding. Well, who was it? Is it you that said you know, the, or somebody in the book that said they took the you know the one wire song they liked and played it over and over again. Um, you know, I mean, but, the, you know, there was definitely, it was definitely more, it felt more art school than it did. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it felt more like, um, you know, uh, uh, like a poetry reading in an art gallery or something. I mean, oh, Peaches I is a really funny performer. What's up? I don't know that it was that boring. No, no, no. It's just, I mean, no, no, no. It, was, it, it definitely had, it had spirit. It had attitude. Plus, those are people um, you but want to hang out with, which is what I think the real, the real sort of... Uh, Absolutely. They were very attractive. At least from cool. my perspective as a 16-year-old, I was like, fuck, those people are cool. Um, yeah, you know, well, it was, it was charisma over, uh, you know, any sort of mus- musical substance. But um, that said, it was fun. Yeah, which is a pretty important part of any dance party, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, the miserable dance parties are not as fun. No. Um, and, I mean, I guess the, the last factor was, like, what about, like, where do the Euros fit into this? I mean, I know you mentioned, you know, Happy Mondays and, and Stone Roses and groups like that who obviously had a lot of dance sensibility. But, like, I don't, I, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, I don't think that those groups were that influential <laughs> on this scene. I mean, I, I think there may have been, um, you know, uh, some underlying similarities there in that it was, like, highly instrumental groups playing music that people, you know, it was intended for, for people to dance to, but, like, I just, I don't, you know, I think, as you said, like, there was always much more comfort moving back and forth across the scene, so I don't think it was necessarily, like, um, drawn upon in the same way. I think people were actually looking further back into into the past. I think they were looking Total at watch. Gang of Four, and they were looking at New Order. Yeah, Gang of Four, New Order, and with a, with a heaping portion of Chic and Nile Rodgers. You know what I mean? It's, um... I think uh, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think it's a difference between you know the the difference between English early '90s um, post second summer of love rave scene and American um, dance punk is the difference between ecstasy and cocaine. And there's your there's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that said, there were a number of groups in the UK, in particular, who while they were actually sort of continuing in a fairly natural lineage along from, you know, even things like uh, Happy Mondays and Stone Roses, as we mentioned, all of a sudden the time was right for them to hit in the United States, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's where you get, I think, the sort of the Franz Ferdinand block party and Test Icicles, which, of course, was was Dev Hines' original band. Yeah, but I think, you know, I mean, they owe as much to the Smiths as anything, you know what I mean? The Smiths were, you know you know, was fairly danceable music as well. So I think, you know, they, they, those early night, I mean, early 2000s bands like Franz Ferdinand, Block Party, Test Icicles, uh, Phoenix as they emerged, you know, they were, they were definitely much more rock oriented than they were dance oriented. I mean, it was music to dance to, but they were rock bands. And um, I think that, you know, it was more to like the Smiths almost than like New Order. All right. Well, I think we've uh, more or less exhausted the, the topic. What do you think? Any, any final thoughts on this? It fucking rocks. There was never a time when people stopped dancing, so that's good.
welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, it's a Brother, Brother podcast today, and um, we're going to end this podcast where we end every podcast. Christian, what are you listening to? I am listening to the sound of four shotgun blasts in Holcomb, Kansas. Uh, I have been reading In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It's one way to get rid of the clutter. Nice. So I, I read In Cold Blood, which, I, you know, it's terrific. It's like um, if you are... It's sort of the basis for all modern true crime, um, and uh, I sort of can't believe that I hadn't gotten to it earlier. Um, but it is also sort of fascinating the way that you know the the criminal psychology that that sort of um, basically uh, became the substance of the Channel A and E for the last thirty years um, was uh, you know was all sort of teased out in this um, in this book, and uh, then actually just watched Capote last night to sort of wrap that up and you know it's a really stellar performance by philip seymour hoffman it is kind of boring i think if you're gonna see the movie probably about as good a time as you can see it is right at like as you are wrapping up the book though because you are never going you're never going to care that much about that story again um so uh so it definitely sort of helps if you can contextualize it in your own mind um how about you I am going to very, very strongly recommend a book uh, my friend Alan Ferry sent me the other day called Imagine Me Gone by Adam Hazlitt. Um, and it is uh, kind of arresting in, the, in, the num- in a number of ways. Uh, it's a great book. It's extremely well written. It's, uh, you know, I mean, the way that it, it's told from the perspective of all the different members of one five-member family. Um, and, you know, the the... Uh, control of the, or the, you know, the, con- you know, the control over the, the different voices is, is really remarkable. Um, it is about a, a family, you know, sort of stricken with multi-generational mental illness. Um, the older brother is also a music uh, fanatic, and it's one of his coping mechanisms is to bury himself in music. So, uh, again, uh, it is called Imagine Me Gone by Adam Hazlitt. I believe it came out last year. And one of the best books I've read in quite a while. The other thing is that it, it, you know, the reason that it was sent to me is because uh, of the parallels. Um, hopefully, not uh, as strong in the mental illness front, but uh, it's it's a you know weirdly parallel in the sense that uh, British father, American mother, um, lived you know takes place largely in Boston and Maine, and and so all the sort of there wasn't an ounce of it that was unfamiliar to me, uh, right down to the fact that the uh, mentally ill brother lives uh, on the same block that I lived on, in Boston on Shamit Ave. So uh, very, um, you know, very again very familiar territory, uh, but on top of that, a great book and a great writer. Do you want to add a song to the 417 billion top 10 songs of all time? Go for it. All right, I will. Um, One of my favorites. I'm going with uh, A Time for Heroes by the Libertines, which I would have put on earlier, but I have this constant uh, fear that I've already done it. Um, So anyway, A Time for Heroes by the Libertines off their first album, Up the Bracket. Fucking great song. Looking forward to hearing it on in the context of this playlist. Nice. And uh, in the in the dance punk theme, I will throw on Banquet by Black Party. Very cool. Uh, I remember seeing them on that tour. They were a good, good live Definitely. Band. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, wrap this up, and I'll catch you next week. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartorian, Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. 
and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.